0: Uh, but I want to encourage you
1: to, uh, to keep using that, and uh, summer will come upon us, and vacations and things like that will happen, but uh, I just want to encourage you, stay engaged to in, uh, in John's Gospel. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to move on to week six this week. We've made it all the way. We're actually going to finish the second chapter of John's Gospel today. Um, let me just start out by pointing something out that I think, I think almost all of us know. Your family might be the exception, so maybe you don't, but uh, every family has a crazy At least one. Uh, I see that my mom is not here in the room today, so I'll just say this. If my mom were here and uh, you were to ask all of her siblings, who's the crazy in your family? All of them but one would say the same person. Because everybody in the family knows who the family crazy is, except for the family crazy, right? There's only one person in the family who doesn't know. You might have more than one in your family. Uh, But everybody in the family knows who the family crazy is, except for the family crazy. And it's because uh, self-awareness is just a tough skill to master, right? Uh, the uncle who shows up to every event drunk, he doesn't know that that's weird. Or the aunt uh, who turned 14 like 40 years ago and just stayed there, uh, she doesn't know that she's 14 still. And uh, so, you know, that happens. Uh, you maybe have a cousin who has just this really impressive record of making poor life choices. It's seemingly the same one over and over again. Every family's got one. Um, now here's the deal. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, my family, there's a couple possibilities. <laughs> maybe your family's the exception, or maybe you're the guy. Uh, it's probably one of those two, but, but every family has one. Now, uh, I have, I've been a Christian a long time. Um, I've been a pastor for, this is my 15th year, and so I know some things about uh, church and you know what to do. There's really no church I couldn't walk into and like, make myself at home. Um, I get that. Like For better or worse, like I know what to do, right? Uh, my experience has been that the family of God has some crazies too, right? Uh, and usually the same rules apply. Usually the people around them know who the family crazy is, but the family crazy doesn't always know. Either. They don't usually know, right? They, they might be a little spiritually nutty, but self-awareness is just really hard. It's just a hard thing, hard thing to master. Uh, well, today in John's gospel, what we're going to see is the first of several confrontations that Jesus has with people who just really lack self-awareness in this, in this case. like In God's family, they are, they are the family crazies. Uh, here's the thing about the family crazy. Even though they're crazy, they're still our family. Right? We, still, we still love them. Uh, we want to we help them. We want to see them change because they're still our family. though. So we, we love them. Uh, this is, what's interesting about this is the last thing we saw last week uh, we saw Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding celebration. It was a party. It was fun. If you were here, we laughed a lot. We had a good time. Uh, this week stands in stark contrast. He just like totally flipped the script uh, on that. This will definitely go uh, some to some degree the opposite direction. But turning the last week, the wedding in Cana was basically on the seventh day of Jesus' public ministry. And the next thing we see is Jesus makes his first of four trips to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover because he's Jewish. And uh, so we're really early on in Jesus' public ministry. He doesn't waste a lot of time getting right to it. So, uh, so he goes, and he's going to confront this group of people, and what's interesting about them is that they think they're serving God. They think they're devoted to God. They think they're very zealous. They think they're spiritually engaged. They think they're morally upright. Um, the one thing that they really love to do is compare themselves to everyone around them and view themselves as comparatively righteous, um, so, so they're going to do that. They're the good people. Now, the temptation for us is, the whole reason I even point this, this family crazy thing out is that the temptation for us is going to be to read this narrative, this account, and think, man, are they idiots? Uh, yes, they are idiots. We know that, but they don't know because they're, they're the family crazies. Now, the trick is, if all we do is look at their story and think, man, they're idiots, but we don't ever look at ourselves or reflect on ourselves, then we're, we're doing exactly what they're doing, right? So that's, so that's going to be the trick for us is to decide, okay, how do I avoid being the family crazy in this situation? And how do I allow this narrative, this interaction, these words of Jesus, how, I, how do I allow them to shine a light on me um, so, that, so, that it can, uh, so that I can grow from it? Uh, a pastor that I listen to often, he says, you know, the important thing is not to read other people's story and judge, but it's to read the story and allow it to judge me. Allow it to shine a light on my heart. So, we're going to try to avoid that pitfall. We're going to try to do that today. So, today's story is in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Jesus clears out the temple. It might be a familiar story to a lot of you. Uh, After the wedding at Cana, he makes his first missions trip, if you will, to Jerusalem, uh, which is sort of the hub of of Jewish life at that time in history. And uh, as you already know, he gets to the temple. You might be familiar with the story, and he's not happy about what he finds. What he finds there. So, what I want to do is um, I'm going to play a little, uh, play this a little bit backwards. I'm going to read the last three verses. Now, they actually talk about what happens after Jesus clears out the temple, because I think when you see what happens there, it actually shines a light on what he was thinking through the process. So, this is what verse 23 says. It says, "Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in him, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, let me just sum that up for you. You can't fool God. Jesus ain't no punk. Okay? You can't, there's no way for us to trick him into thinking that we're like zealous and religious and righteous people. We can't trick God into thinking that. I can't trick God just like they couldn't. I can't trick God into thinking that I'm following him when in reality there are areas of my life that I have no intention of ever surrendering to God, right? He can't be fooled in that way is kind of the big idea. Now, I know this doesn't apply to anybody here, okay? This is, this is other people. All over the world today, there are people who are in church, consider themselves Christians, and the truth is there are areas of their life where they're just living in complete contradiction to God, and they have no intention of ever surrendering. But they, claim they believe that they're Christians, right? Okay, now, let's just do this, just to make sure that uh, we're not in any danger here. Who's ever done anything hypocritical? Has anyone ever held someone else to a standard that you did not uphold yourself? Okay, good. Uh, I think I got every hand there. Uh, yes, me too, is the verbiage that we're, we're looking at. We've all fallen into this pitfall because... If you're like me, you've been a Christian for a while, you get really good at playing the game. It turns into a little bit of a game, and I brought some games with me. Uh, I know you were all sitting there wondering, I wonder what's in the trunk. You were were thinking that, I know. Uh, This is a very popular game at our house. Uh, It turns out there's like a whole subculture built around this particular game. I had no idea. Uh, We love this game. And uh, in this game, you, uh, you build settlements and cities and roads, and you trade in resources and that kind of thing. Uh, it's really, really fun. You build a society, essentially. Uh, but the trick is, it's just a game. It's not a real society. Uh, some of you are like, no, it's, if you might love this game, you'd be like, no, it's real life. Um, it's just a game. You're just playing a part. You're just playing a role. But the truth is, we get pretty good at it. It's pretty easy. It's like this. Um, this last week, since you saw me last, seven days ago, I didn't have to try to stay out of prison. Like, I just didn't do anything that would send me there, right? It's not that hard. I can play that game. I can stay in bounds. I can play the part. I can look the part. I can pretty easily not do anything super egregious so that I look like a good citizen. It's the same way with our faith. It becomes fairly easy to sort of look like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I didn't do anything like glaring that said otherwise, uh, but... It can be a game. What Jesus is really after is the transformation of the heart. Right? He's, he wants to shape who we are and lead us into a more full life. So we get pretty good at playing the game. Now here's what's cool about this particular game. After we mastered this, this was like a birthday present or a Christmas present, then they really got you hooked because there's expansion packs. You move on. We got right here, this is like next level. This right here doubles the size of your map. Uh, this is totally nerding out right here. Uh, this will take you farther and make you invest more in this game than you ever wanted to invest. Uh, this right here, this is what we do with the Bible. We move on because uh, we can kind of behave and look the part. Uh, but then we get to our expansion pack. We take the Bible, we get to the places where it starts to like pick at the things you know that we don't really like. Maybe convicts us about an attitude or behavior in our life, and uh, and we just kind of reinterpret it. We kind of find we kind of come up with reasons why that doesn't really apply now or that doesn't really apply to me. Uh, there was a young man who uh, I was trying to mentor for years and years and years, and apparently, as I'm about to tell you, didn't do a very good job. Uh, one of the things that we had a little confrontation about was uh, internet piracy, like stealing music on the internet, right? Uh, it's not as big of a problem as it used to be, but it used to be a huge problem. And uh, so what you do, if you're not familiar with it, is you know, there's electronic music files on the internet. You basically download a copy of it. And this was his justification. You're going to think I'm making this up. It's so ridiculous, but, but this, is, this is the truth. He said, well, it's not really stealing, because when you steal, you take something from someone else. But pirating is just making a copy of what belongs to something else and taking the copy. And I was like, you have no intention of ever surrendering to the fact that you're doing something wrong, do you? Right? We get the expansion pack. We find reasons why it doesn't apply to us. By the way, there are entire streams of Christianity they're doing this very thing around particular issues. Uh, they're kind of culturally hot, and they just, they just don't want to let God be God. They want to make their own decision. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, there are other expansion packs. Uh, man, we're a family of nerds. Woo! This, is, this is a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is the grace expansion pack. Grace, grace, grace. No change in my life. Grace, grace, grace. Whatever I want to do, I'm going to do because grace. Right? It's all, it's all grace. I, I don't really have to make any change. God's not really anticipating that my heart will be reshaped anyway because grace, right? Thank goodness for grace. Uh, Paul actually addresses this particular expansion pack in Romans chapter 6. Familiar familiar verse? Uh, See how I just displayed that product perfectly right there? (laughs) Romans chapter 6, he addresses this. He says, hey, should we? now that we have this grace, should we just go on sinning more and more so that grace will abound more and more? No, of course not, he says. And he goes on to explain why... If that's our attitude, if we feel like grace is just a license to disobey God and and just do whatever we want and disrespect God, he says, if that's our attitude, then we actually don't really understand the grace we've received and we actually don't really know God. Because the truth is, um, we reach a point in our maturity where we get a hold of the grace we've received and we think, oh my goodness, this is so incredible. This makes me want to serve God because he's been so good to me. That's what grace should do. It should drive us toward God, not toward sin. But those are some of the games that we play. Uh, now, you might not like, think of them that overtly. Uh, I don't like to think that I'm playing games with God. But the truth is, I've probably done some of all three of those. Uh, probably most of us most of us have. But Jesus, at the temple, he's going to expose the game. He can't be pumped. He can't be tricked. So here's the point I just want to make sure we have our heads around, and we'll, we'll read the story. This is, uh, this is the thing I want us to know. Knowing Jesus, his promise is that by knowing him, he will lead us to the fullest life possible, that we will abound in things like grace, hope, peace, that joy will be ever-increasing as we know Jesus. That's why we've made helping people know Jesus our one and only objective at Center Church. That's, that's our goal. But the truth is, if I'm going to deal dishonestly with him and manipulate his words, uh, I think by doing that, I'm revealing the fact that I actually don't have a relationship with him. Does that make sense? Uh, you wouldn't do that in a, healthy, in a healthy relationship. It's evidence that I actually don't know him. And so what we'll see in the Gospels as we go through uh, God, John's Gospel, what we'll see is even people who are a complete disaster, when they come to him and they deal honestly with Jesus, uh, they leave with their tank full. It's only the people who have their own agenda and have made something other than him God. Those are the people that end up frustrated. Uh, Wasn't it cool last week when Jesus just made wine and we all celebrated and it was all fun? And then we get this like heavy thing that, uh, but you know, we got to deal with both. So let's just unpack the interesting part of the story. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 20, it'll be up on the screen. This is what it says. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. hundreds of years before in Psalm 69, verse nine. The Jews then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Okay, tough scene to crawl into. Uh, Sounds like there's a little bit of a ruckus, whatever a ruckus is. I feel like I just dated myself there. Um, So it's Passover season. Now, you might remember uh, that what happens at Passover is the Jews come from all over the place to the temple to worship God. The Passover is basically a week-long celebration commemorating an event that happened years before. We actually talked about the original Passover about five or six weeks ago. Uh, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. Uh, you remember Moses, if you've ever seen the Mos- movie, Moses was their, uh, was their leader. They were slaves in Egypt, and they were just oppressed under Pharaoh. Uh, it was just greedy, and they were just forced into hard labor. And, uh, and God... Uh, He passed judgment on this And so the Passover celebration is It commemorates God's wrath Passing over those who were Obedient to God's instructions When they were slaves in Egypt And the eventual outcome of that obedience Was that God led them to their own land uh, Where they built this temple And made it the center of their worship And in this land they were free to serve And worship God Um, So Passover commemorates this particular Occasion And this temple where this goes down This is the hub that they established as the center for their worship of God. So Passover is a big deal. The whole nation shuts down for a week. Uh, Anyone who can in any way conceivably get to Jerusalem gets there to worship. And this is the first of four Passover seasons that Jesus will have during his public ministry. Uh, The crucifixion will actually also happen uh, during the fourth one. Uh, so we'll see him go. Now, here's one point that's really important for us to just keep in mind. Something that Jesus establishes, something that's different for us than it was for them, is that they had a place for worship. Okay? The center of our worship is not a place. The center of our worship is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all of those requirements of the law for them. The reason that we, we don't go to a temple, we don't have a priest who goes into into God's presence on our behalf and makes sacrifices and atonements on our behalf. We don't, we don't have that, okay? This is it's just a very important point to understand that Jesus is our mediator between us and God. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a temple for that. We don't have a priest who does that. In First Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and in chapter 2, verse 5, he says this. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. So we don't go to a place to get to God. We go to Jesus to get to God. Now, that's really good news, because it'd be a bummer if we had to walk 15 miles to a temple just to get to God. You can get to God wherever you are through Jesus. Now, this is why later on in John chapter 14, Jesus made a statement that ultimately got him, got him killed. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. It very controversial at the time. Um, but, but that's exactly why he said it, because he is our mediator. So here in this context, they, uh, they play the game. What authority do you have to tell us uh, what to do? And this is why he says, you know what? Tear this mother down, and I'll build a new temple in three days. This is why, because he's our temple. He's our access to God. He's the way we get to God. All right, so all the way back in Leviticus, uh, way back in the beginning, uh, if, you've, if you've never read through Leviticus, uh, I can understand why. Because it's, it's a lot of law, and the truth is, in order to really appreciate it and have it be interesting, it really does require quite a bit of context, um, and so it's not the easiest thing to read through, but in Leviticus, God gave really specific instructions for how to worship him and how to make offerings and atonements at the temple. So every year, people would bring their offerings to the temple. Now, this is an agrarian society, so... Uh, Like for us, we're not really. Like most of us, if we were going to bring an offering to God, it would be in the form of currency uh, because our understanding is that all we have belongs to God, and and so we would return a portion to Him. Our offering would look something like that. Uh, But for them, it might be fruits, it might be animals, it often was animals. It might be currency also. uh, But specifically, it mentions. Uh, the animals that are in there, oxen, sheep, pigeons, doves, those, those kinds of things. So let's just imagine this journey, all right? Let's just imagine that we're all going to walk 12 miles with our offering. Uh, let's say for you it's a sheep. You're bringing your sheep, your best, most spotless sheep, uh, to, uh, to, the, to the temple to offer to God. And uh, so we're making this journey together, and uh, I've got your sheep right here, actually. Um, I, I told Pastor Rick, uh, he texted me this morning, and he was at the store and uh, I said, "Well, you know, if you see a stuffed sheep, can you just grab that so? I'll have... uh, and here's the thing. Uh, Pastor Rick is an intelligent and educated man. <laughs> that was 150 grand well spent, my friend. <laughs> so that education paid off. Um, so this is your sheep. This is Lambert. Now the irony is, um, I have this uh, Middle Eastern spotted sheep right here. The irony is that you would probably have chosen a spotless sheep, uh, a spotless lamb. But nonetheless, uh, you, you're bringing Lambert as your as your offering to God. Not you know not the one that has like the eye gouged out or the one that's like black on one side. You're bringing your best. Lambert is your best, most spotless sheep. So apparently the other ones have a lot of spots. Uh, now uh, this is a principle that we refer to oftentimes as the principle of first fruits. It's not really where we're going to dive into today, but it it is really important in our relationship to God. In our world, when we think of like giving things to God, we might think something like this. Uh, I got a new couch, so I'm going to take my old couch that my dog sleeps on and dump it at the church to be a blessing, right? We might think something like that. Uh, You probably wouldn't, um, but other people would. So here's the thing. In this time... If we were going to, like, go, you know, bring our smelly old dog sleep couch to the temple, um, God might want to say something like, you know what, keep the, keep the couch. You can keep that. I don't need it. Um, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So maybe we should just talk about that. That might be a place where I would want to kind of play the game because <laughs> I'd like to get rid of my old couch. Um, but, but the idea of first fruits is... It makes no noise. The principle of first fruits is um, the idea that I'm going to give my first and best to God because He's God because He holds that spot in my life. And so we're going to bring our best, our best sheep. So, uh, so we're bringing our best to the temple. And uh, we're not Jewish unless you are, but I don't, I don't think we are. So, um, so we would go to a place called the Court of the Gentiles. Okay, there's there's Jews and everyone else is a Gentile. That's probably just about all of us. So we would go to a place uh, called the Court of Gentiles, and it's basically a place where people who are not Jewish but believe in and worship God can go to have access to the temple and make their offerings and, and those kinds of things. And so, um, so that's where we would go. When we get there, uh, what we would find is there's, uh, there's somebody at the gate to inspect our offering. Now, that might sound like a huge turnoff to us, but... The reason is um, they didn't want people saying, okay, I'm going to bring my best to God and then showing up with their smelly old dog sleep couch, Uh, right? The temple didn't need that in the same way that the church doesn't need that. I'm going to put Lambert right there just so I don't turn the music on anymore. Uh, So there would be somebody there, basically a checkpoint to say, uh, yes, this is an acceptable sacrifice. This is your best. You can bring that to God. Or come on, man, really? This is not your best. Uh, this is kind of how it started out. Well, what ended up happening was uh, we get there, and uh, you got little Lambert here, and uh, you get to the checkpoint, and the person at the checkpoint says, I'm sorry, sir, this, um, this lamb is actually not spotless, um, so you know, you're going to have to either bring another one, or you're going to have to buy one from us. So you're not going to walk 12 miles back to your house to take Lambert home, and get another one that may or may not be acceptable, what are you going to do? You're going to trade Lambert in on a very overpriced sheep, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, but you got your sheep and you're in, and so everything's all good. Uh, so we go, uh, you know, so we're around the temple. Now, the temple is not like Indiana Jones style, like a little room that we kind of crowd into with an idol in the middle. There's like a huge courtyard with a wall around it. The temple's massive. So you get in and you could spend all day there. Right? So you're there, you got your sheep, you're going to make your sacrifice. And a little while later, you run into Pastor Rick. And uh, he's there, and he's got his sheep. And uh, you're looking at Pastor Rick's sheep, and you're like, Lambert? Is that you? They sold Pastor Rick your sheep for four times the price that they just gave you. This is the kind of garbage that's happening at the temple. You can understand why Jesus is a little bit irritated by this. He, you can understand why he says, You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You understand why he's upset about that? that that's, what's, uh, that's what's going on. So maybe you didn't bring Lambert. Maybe you had, uh, you had currency instead of livestock. Maybe you were a merchant or something like that. And uh, so you come, and uh, you're practicing the principle of tithing, and you want to make an offering to God in that way. Uh, and you show up, and uh, you get to the gate, and the guy at the gate's like, uh, I'm sorry, sir, i um, we actually don't take that particular type of currency, which isn't unsurprising because they didn't have like a national mint the way that, the way that we do. Uh, so you show up there and he says, you're going to actually have to buy some, exchange that for some temple money. Um, no big deal, except have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? You deposit like $150 and then you leave with a whoopee cushion, Right? <laughs> right? This is kind of how it is. Like you go to, uh, I went to a Seattle Mariners game and I had a water bottle one time. You know, you buy them in like a pack of 36 or 48 at Costco. They cost like 12 cents a piece. Uh, Sorry, sir, you can't bring that in here. And then what happens? You go inside to buy another one. You walk up to the concessions. I'll take a bottle bottle of water. And they're like, that'll be $936 plus tax. (laughs) This is what's happening at the temple gate. And Jesus isn't having it. He's, he's, He's had enough. So Jesus shows up. He sees what's happening and he's furious. Now, this we run into kind of a cultural difficulty with. Because, uh, for example, when I was a kid, uh, the church I went to, there was a woman who was a phenomenal artist there. She loved to paint. And she painted this picture of Jesus. Uh, In fact, my parents probably have one of these at their house somewhere. Uh, And uh, she, I don't remember if she sold them or just gave them away to people in the church. It was a really great painting. Uh, She was very, very skilled. A couple things that were interesting about the painting, though. Uh, One was that Jesus kind of looked like her oldest son. He had like a perfectly feathered back 70s haircut. Uh, He had a perfectly clean robe on, and um, he was very pale. He didn't look Jewish at all. Uh, He didn't look anything like what I envisioned that he would look like, but he looked probably a lot like the pictures that you all have seen of Jesus. That's kind of our mental picture. He's just like straight from 1976. Uh, and he's really handsome. Okay, but this Jesus does something different than that. I don't know how long it takes to braid a whip. Okay, I have no idea. But he shows up and sees what's going on. He starts making a whip. Literally, he says he braids a whip. And he takes that out and he starts driving the animals out. And he's flipping over the tables of the money changers. It's totally different than what I expect the guy in the painting to do. Right? I expect him to like, sing in sort of a Barry White voice, soothing songs. But Jesus turns the place upside down. And here's how you know he was really serious about this. Because it doesn't appear that anybody actually like, stood up to him. He just drives out the animals, and off they go. Uh, it's actually pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, we tend to think of Jesus only in the really gentle context, which he is, but this Jesus is much different. The integrity and character of God is being challenged or misrepresented, and he's not having it. So this problem that we see in the temple... It's kind of interesting because uh, this group of people, they're the good people. They love God. Uh, they're trying really hard to obey God's commandments. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's generally a good thing. The problem is an outcropping of the heart. Uh, there's, there's some difficulty that's been stewing inside their heart, really across the board as a, as a society, uh, that happens really to all of us. What they don't need is necessarily for someone to come in and flip over the tables and chase out the animals. What they really need is to just recognize the condition of the heart. And so we got to make an important delineation uh, right here. Uh, God has given them some specific instructions about how to worship. Um, He's given them instructions about that. He's given them spiritual leaders to kind of keep that uh, all in check and to hold them accountable to that. Uh, We might say, my finances are none of God's business, none of anyone else's business. God doesn't need my money. Um, but that statement is just fallacious, okay? So, so it's good that God has given them instructions, and there's expectations. Now, that part is good. The problem is when we go past what God has instructed, and that's really, that's really what they've done right here. They've added other things. The problem is in their hearts, and it's not just as it pertains to money. Think about how we sometimes treat the scriptures. I'll just give you an example, okay? Okay. Um, In Colossians 3, verse 18, this is what it says. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay. Now, a husband with a selfish heart, who's self focused, is going to completely ignore what the next verse says and just demand that submission. Uh, In fact, maybe even command that type of submission. But a husband with a heart that wants to honor God is going to say, Okay. What's God saying to me? Okay, I know what God is saying to my wife, and, and she's responsible, to the Lord, for that, but what's God saying to me? And the next verse says, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. So let me ask you this question. If you just take those two instructions, one to wives, one to husbands, and just try to picture what that would look like. If you had a wife who held her husband in such high regard that she's willing to submit to him as the leader of their household. And you have a husband who holds his wife in such high regard that he's willing to love her even if it means great personal sacrifice. Don't you think that's a recipe for a pretty happy couple? A mutually uh, honoring couple? I don't think we need to add a lot to that. The problem is gonna come in when we do. That's when it's gonna start to get difficult. It makes no sense to manipulate it. Well, the same is true of our worship with God. We get in trouble when our hearts go sideways and we start to add other things. So, uh, so let me just kind of close this down with the idea that God is gonna confront us on things. That's gonna happen, if not in this scripture, that's gonna happen periodically as we're going through life with Christ, as we're reading through the scripture. God's gonna confront us about things. Sometimes he's gonna press on us about some things that we need to change and the thing we have to wrestle with there is, am I going to pursue that or am I going to play the game? Why would Jesus... What did Jesus ask? Well, think about it this way. Jesus has this interaction with the religious people. And how did they respond? They responded by playing the game. They said, well, who gave you the authority to come in here and do this? But really, don't you think they knew it was wrong to rip people off? Do you think they really needed to see Jesus' credentials in order to go... Yeah, we probably shouldn't be charging five times the market value for the same sheep that we just stole from that guy, right? They didn't need Jesus' credential. They knew they were in the wrong, but they're playing the game. They ask him, well, who said? Who said you're the boss? Uh, they already knew they were in the wrong, and that's, and that's what we do all the time if it makes us uncomfortable. The truth is there are patterns, beliefs, behaviors, attitudes in our lives uh, that over time they become accepted and normalized. Because we're just playing the game until it doesn't bother anymore. Our tendency is to just justify or ignore or compare ourselves to others, right? I might be be kind of a jerk, but not compared to my neighbor Bill. We kind of do that thing. Um, That's playing the game, and we're all subject to it. So my question for each of us, including myself, is this. It's kind of a pointed one, but my question is, am I actually following Jesus, or am I playing the game? Am I, am I actually following Jesus, not just doing Christian stuff? Am I actually living a life with the purpose of honoring God, or am I just doing Christian things? It's something, it's something to think about, uh, because we can get into a routine where we are doing a lot of Christian things mindlessly, uh, but not necessarily actually following Jesus, like making decisions based on the desire to see God glorified in my life. Uh, that's one implication of actually following Jesus. Uh, now, as we read this story, and we just think about uh, the condition of the heart that Jesus is addressing, there probably will be some level of conviction. There, there probably should be, uh, at least on some level. Unless your heart has arrived at full perfection, uh, then uh, this passage has nothing to do with you. Uh, but, but through this story, God is really revealing the fact that we have selfish hearts left to ourselves. We will veer away, away from God and away from his instruction. Uh, That's that's really true for all of us. But I want to tell you, in spite of the conviction, why this is such an encouragement, why this is actually a blessing. There's really an amazing positive to all of this. Um, So think about this. At this time, they're celebrating the Passover. The Passover was a celebration of God delivering them from oppression under a greedy dictator. That's what's happening right now in this story. But then what happened? They got free, they went and did their own thing, and eventually they created a new system of slavery that was really fueled by greed. They put themselves back under oppression to greed. They're doing religious stuff, but they're not experiencing things like joy and peace, transformation of the heart. They're not experiencing loving community. They're actually taking advantage of each other because they're just playing the game. Now, here's what's really, really great about this is that uh, by revealing the fact that we're playing the game, God actually sets us free to not have to play the game anymore. Does that, does that make sense? Once we see the heart problem, then we don't have to play the game. Then we can experience freedom. We can actually follow Jesus and actually live lives that glorify God and actually experience joy and freedom and hope, those kinds of things that come from being part of his family. When our heart problem is revealed, that's when our heart can be transformed, but not until that point. We play the game without a changed heart. Everything just goes back to how it used to be. We're just, we're just in the machine, but allowing Jesus to confront the condition of the heart it leads us into the light. It's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, if you're like me, you probably don't like to be told you're wrong, um, but sometimes I am wrong. Allowing Jesus to confront that will lead us into the light. So I want to leave you with this one verse, uh, also written by John in a different book, in 1 John, um, one of the last book of the books of the Bible. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, this is what it says. It says, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. The Bible often uses light and darkness as uh, kind of analogous for good and evil, that kind of thing. God is light, and in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, then we lie and do not live out the truth that we claim. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. By allowing God to shine the light on the true condition of our heart, you know, sometimes you just got to own your mistakes. By allowing God to do that, then we can actually walk in the light as he is in the light. But until we're, we're willing to just be exposed for who we really are and have our hearts exposed, guess how we hide it? We got to stay in the darkness to keep it hidden. Um, God's not there. That's not how we experience relationships. So my hope is uh, that for all of us, as a, as a community of people who legitimately want the best for each other, legitimately want to help each other know Jesus and experience the life that he has for us, that we can be free to be who we really are, uh, that we don't have to play the game, uh, that when we're struggling, we can be honest about the fact that we're struggling and when we're winning, we can celebrate together. So my hope is that we'll allow him to confront those conditions of our heart confront the places that we really don't want other people to see um, if there's no if this isn't a safe place to do that I can't imagine where would be a safe place to do that so let me pray for you